Good morning, everyone. I just want to clarify right off the top that I do not teach in children's ministry. God loves the children too much. Okay? But I also want to say that, uh, you know, uh, as a father, if I still had small children, um, I would want to do everything I could to be in there uh, helping out uh, with those kids. What a wonderful opportunity it is to... Um, And the reason I say that is because, you know, uh, as, as parents, we want to look for every opportunity we can to build into the, uh, the development of the faith of our children. And, and this is one of those, of those moments when we can do that. In fact, even as a grandfather, I would want to get connected and involved in uh, Promised Land if I wasn't up here preaching all the time. Um, and uh, so, but I just think it's a wonderful opportunity. So I want to encourage you to pray about that and to think about that. Um, and uh, so anyways, that's, uh, that's that. Now, after viewing that uh, little video clip, how many of you um, can think of something that you started that you still haven't finished? Hmm, yes, okay. Well, in the book of Haggai, the Lord confronts the Jewish people about something that they started and hadn't finished. And so... The Lord had some things to say to them. He's got some things to say to us. And so I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Haggai. And while you're hunting for that, um, it's right after the book of Habakkuk, uh, I'm going to give you just a little background to the events leading up to this book. Now, after the Jewish people uh, were miraculously set free from slavery in Egypt uh, through the hand of God... And then established in the promised land, they were initially ruled by judges or political and military leaders. And then after that, by kings, beginning with King Saul, King David, and the king, uh, king Solomon. When Solomon died, his son Rehoboam made a number of leadership blunders, which ultimately led to civil war, uh, resulting in Israel being divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom called Israel, the capital of which was Samaria, and the southern kingdom called Judah, whose capital city was Jerusalem. Now sadly, in the years that followed that civil war and the division of the kingdoms, both the northern and the southern kingdoms deteriorated morally and spiritually. But out of his love for them, God sent a series of prophets, many of whom we've already looked at in our walk through the Old Testament, prophets like Hosea and Amos and Isaiah, to wake them up and to call them back to himself. But the people didn't want to hear what they had to say. And so after decades, and I repeat, decades of warning them, God finally turned them over to aggressor nations, allowing the northern kingdom of Israel to be conquered and taken captive by the nation, the superpower Assyria in 722 BC. And then 150 years later, allowing the southern kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem to be conquered and taken captive by the nation of Babylon in 586 BC. Now, after conquering Jerusalem, the Babylonians took every able-bodied, every healthy survivor and shipped them back to Babylon into captivity. During the 70 years that the Israelites were in captivity in Babylon, the Babylonians themselves were conquered by the Medes and the Persians. And in 538 B.C., one of the Persian kings, Cyrus, did something that was highly unusual. He issued a decree allowing the Jews who were in captivity to actually be set free and to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild their city and their temple. This decree made no human sense 
But it wasn't a surprise to God at all because God had predicted through his prophet Jeremiah 50 years before it actually happened that um, this would take place in Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 10. And so three major groups of Jews began to leave Babylon over a period of time and make their way back to Jerusalem. The first group we'll call Company A returned to Jerusalem around 537 B.C. under the leadership of Zerubbabel, whose unusual name destroys the theory that your name could actually prevent you from reaching your leadership potential. <laughs> Company B returned to Jerusalem around 458 B.C. under the leadership of Ezra, whose ministry was primarily that of teaching the scriptures to his people. Company C was led by Nehemiah, who led a massive task force to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now, Company A consisted of about 50,000 people, and when they arrived in Jerusalem, they found the city in ruins. The walls were broken down, and the temple was utterly destroyed. In 536 B.C., they began building an altar for the temple. And then they followed that up by beginning to place the foundation stones for the temple um, and put them in their place. Now, unfortunately, there were people in the area who were opposed to the temple being rebuilt. And they began to terrorize the Israelites. And in response, the Israelites, who, remember, had just spent 70 years in captivity, who were seeking for security, they were looking for stability, for peace. They didn't want to mess with this. And so when they began to be terrorized, they basically pulled the plug and stopped working on the temple. And so the temple stayed in a ruined state for another 15 years. And it's at this point in 520 B.C., that Haggai blazes into their lives and has a zealous message from God for them to wake up, for them to carefully examine their priorities and to get on with building God's temple. In verse 1, Haggai addresses his book to two very influential people uh, in Jerusalem, the governor of Judah, Zerubbabel, and also the high priest, Joshua, not to be confused with the Joshua who was the commander-in-chief um, after Moses, the one who led the Israelites into the promised land. And he proceeds, Haggai that is, he proceeds to communicate the words of God to them and to the Jewish people in Jerusalem. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me, if you would, as we read part of the first chapter together, beginning with verse 2. Let's read this together. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. And Lord, we recognize that you had a message you wanted to convey to the people of that day, a message that you also want to speak into our lives. And so I ask that you would uh, really focus our minds, that you would uh, soften our hearts, and then, Lord, you'd give us the courage to respond to whatever it is you say to us. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, this little passage of Scripture which we just read together, at first glance, seems to only be about the constructing of the temple. Um, God was very persistent 
about wanting to have his temple built. And so this would be a great book to preach on before starting a church building program. Yet, as we're going to see in a moment, God is after something much deeper than a physical building here. The question I want to address is, why is God making such a big fuss over the temple here? Why is it so important to him that the temple be built? Well, to answer that, I've got to pull the lens back for just a moment and remind all of us of a theme that we have seen all the way through uh, uh, our walk through the Old Testament. And that theme is simply this. Since our first parents, Adam and Eve, turned their back on God in the Garden of Eden, God has been on a mission. And that mission has been to bring all people back in right relationship with himself. He doesn't just want to be our acquaintances. He longs to be our friend. To be, to, to, for us to consciously be aware of his presence on a moment-by-moment -moment basis and to include him in everything that we do. That is his mission. That is his all-consuming passion. And so when God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he knew after them having spent 400 years in that context that they had a form of godliness. They went through the rituals of their faith, but they really didn't know him at all. And so he sought to reveal himself to them and to teach them about his character and his power. He sought to make himself real to them. Not some distant God, but someone who would be real to them. And so... He showed his power to them through many awe-inspiring miracles that ultimately led to the, to the freedom, the, the Israelites being freed from slavery in Egypt, including the parting of the Red Sea. And in Exodus 13, God made himself real to them through the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. But also in Exodus 25 and 26, God sought to make himself real to the Israelites by having them build a tabernacle, which really served as a portable temple. God wanted the tabernacle constructed to serve as a physical object to remind them of his ongoing presence and his deep desire to be included in their thoughts and their activities. In Exodus 25, verse 8, God says to Moses, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. The key word in that sentence is the word dwell. God says, I will dwell among them. The word dwell is the same word as tabernacle. It could be used as a noun or a verb. For example, in the verse that I just quoted, which says that God, God says, I will dwell among them, it could be translated, I will tabernacle with them. Now here's an aerial view of the modern day replica of the tabernacle, as it would have looked back in the days of Moses. You'll notice that it's portable because God um, was moving the Israelites from place to place at this point in their history. The tabernacle essentially served as a portable temple and it was laid out similarly as the temple would be one day when the Israelites finally settled in the promised land it wasn't long after where God called upon them to build uh, the temple. Now earlier in this series in the book of Exodus um, I went through the tabernacle and I described everything in the tabernacle and the purpose that God assigned to each of the pieces that are in the tabernacle, the pieces of furniture. Everything that is in the tabernacle is there for a reason. It was there for a reason. It was there to communicate a message, to be a symbol of something that God wanted the people to know about him and his relationship with them. 
And so I'm not going to repeat all that again except to say that everything outside and inside the tabernacle, including the bronze altar in the outer courtyard, the golden lampstand in the uh, outer room of the tabernacle, the altar of incense in the outer room or what's sometimes called the holy place, the table of showbread uh, in the holy place, as well as the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant. God included all of these things in the tabernacle and later in his temple to communicate one overarching message. And that is, I am present with you. I want to dwell with you and I want you to dwell with me. And that is why God wanted the temple built again in Haggai's day. Because the Israelites had grown indifferent to God. They were just going through the motions of their religion. And he wanted to give them a physical reminder that he is present with them. Because they were not conscious of his presence. But there was a problem. No one was building the temple. And in Haggai chapter 1, God says four things to the Israelites, and really four things indirectly to us through Haggai that we need to note. First of all, God says, you have misplaced priorities. Look at verse 2. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses, but this house remains in room. The people were saying, in effect, we're not opposed to the principle of rebuilding the temple. In fact, we think it's a good idea. We're supportive of the idea. It's just that we don't have the time to do it right now. There are so many other things that we need to be doing. And God essentially asks them, what are you spending your time on that is so important? You're busy building your paneled houses. Now notice that little adjective, paneled houses. You see, in those days, paneled, paneling had to be imported from Lebanon because there were such few trees around Jerusalem. And so it was expensive. And this is what they were spending their time and their money on. Their highest priority was providing comfort and security and stability for themselves. And they just weren't at all convinced um, or concerned about the need to cultivate their relationship with God. And so what about us? God's desire hasn't changed. Even though God's priority is, is no longer about building a physical temple, his highest longing in his heart hasn't changed from the days of Haggai even back to the days of Moses. And that is for his people to live each moment with the conscious awareness of his presence. What things in your life, what things in my life, distract us from a conscious awareness of Christ in our lives? Maybe it's remodeling your house just as it was for the Israelites here. It's not wrong to remodel your home, of course. But let's face it, if, if we're not careful, you know, our home or the next home we want to buy or the next home we want to build, I mean, it could become all-consuming. And God's just kind of put on a shelf. What is it that's allowing, um, what, what is it that's stealing intimacy with the Lord? Or is taking the place of the Lord in your life? My observation is that we, we're often oblivious to how we put other things ahead of God. And so here's some symptoms of how sometimes we put other things ahead of God. One symptom is a weak prayer life. If we're not going to God first, if we're not going to God often in prayer, it's a clear indication that we're not actively relying on God, that we're actually trusting in something else or in someone else. Another symptom is weariness. 
I mean, we all get physically tired, which can usually be resolved just by having a good night's rest. But if we lose our passion in life and we don't want to go on anymore, it is usually the result of trying to do far more than God ever intended us to do. Or sometimes it's just the result of misplaced priorities. A third symptom is worry. If you find yourself fretting about how things are going to turn out or about what other people think about you, if you find yourself overcome with fear to the point of sleeplessness, to where you're having difficulty functioning, then your focus is on the temporary rather than on the eternal God. A fourth symptom that we may be putting something ahead of God is materialism. You know, it's okay to have stuff and to enjoy life, but God is grieved when we sell our souls in order to obtain it. When we live for comfort, when we live for leisure, because when we're living for that, we're not living for Him. He said, you cannot serve two masters. Whatever you treasure, there your heart will be also. The fact is, your treasure is whatever you're clutching onto. Whatever you can't hold loosely before God with an open hand, if you can't let it go, folks, you don't own it. It owns you. The same is true of relationships. If you can't hold your spouse or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your children with an open hand, then that person is too important to you. So what is it that you're really living for? What is it that you're giving your life to? What is it that you always point to and say, as soon as I get this, as soon as I complete that, as soon as I achieve this, then I'm going to cultivate my relationship with God. What is it? That's the first thing that God points out here. He says, you have misplaced priorities. The second thing he says is, you need to consider the cost of misplaced priorities. Look at verse 5. The Lord says, give careful thought to your ways. And what he's saying here is, sit down, and not just for five minutes. No, go to a quiet place for a few hours, maybe an entire day, and really reflect on the implications, the costs of pursuing your present priorities in the long term. Put yourself at the side of your grave. In other words, the time when it's all said and done. And then think about the priorities that you're pursuing in your life now. And ask yourself, is it really worth giving my life away to that? One cost of misplaced priorities will be disappointment and frustration. Mark my words, whatever you put ahead of God will not only be the source of your greatest worries, the source of your greatest grief and frustration in this life, but one day you're going to face terrible disappointment because earthly treasures will let us down. Our health, our career, our friends, our money, our abilities, our loved ones, they're all going to let us down one day because they're temporary and, and they will pass away. Only God is eternal. Only He is our rock, our foundation. He will never change. He will never leave us or forsake us or let us down. A further cost of misplaced priorities is dissatisfaction. Look at verse 6. God says, You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. What's he saying here? He's saying if your focus is on the temporary things of life, you will always be dissatisfied. He's saying look around you. 
Look to those people who have all the food and all the clothes and all the money that you could ever want. And notice that many of them are still very unhappy. Learn from them. You know, Steve Zeisler tells the story of a woman who was granted $20,000 a month in alimony payments following her divorce. And she, lament, she lamented to the media in the weeks that followed how much worry and agony she was experiencing over how on earth she was going to make ends meet on $240,000 a year. And you see, this is what Haggai is saying. He's saying, see it for what it's worth. The temporary things of life, they never satisfy. You will always want a little more than you have. A third cost with misplaced priorities is God's discipline. Look at verse 10. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields of the mountain. On the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. What God is saying here is, is that he opposes the proud, the self-reliant, the self-sufficient. He will often short-circuit the efforts of those who are living with misguided priorities. And he does that not to punish us. You need to understand that. No, he does that to wake us up to our folly. To help us to realize sooner rather than later how empty and how frustrated we're going to be when we come to the end of life and we realize that we've invested our life in stuff that doesn't matter. God says, you have misplaced priorities. He says, you need to spend some time considering the cost of your misplaced priorities. The third thing God says is this, you need to change your mind and obey me. Look at verse 7. The Lord says, give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build a house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. And then if you look down in verse 12, you read that Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest, as well as the people, obeyed the voice of their Lord, of the Lord their God. So what happened here? Well, the people repented. They changed their minds. They stopped rationalizing. They stopped offering excuses. They stopped blaming others. They stopped feeling sorry for themselves. Instead, they agreed with God that yes, in fact, they had drifted from God. That they had become indifferent to Him and to His call in their life. And that they needed to know God and to have a healthy reverence for Him in their lives. That's what repentance is. It is revering God so much that you actually change your mind about the direction your life is going. And you stop talking about what you should be doing or about what you plan to do someday when you get around to it. And you actually turn around and you start doing what God has called you to do. Now I remind you that even though the Israelites obeyed God here and they started working on the temple, they didn't complete the job in one day. No. They built the temple one rock, one stone at a time. One day at a time. And we need to keep that in mind. And we need to be encouraged by that. I mean, if your prayer life and your Bible reading isn't happening, God isn't asking you to become a prayer giant overnight. Do you understand that? No, He's asking you to take a step. He's asking you to take one rock and put it in place. He's asking you to start building the temple inside of you, your relationship with God, one step at a time. And so set aside even just 10 minutes initially 
to begin reading the Bible and to begin to pray whatever it is that's on your heart. If you're filled with anxiety, take a step. Just stop a few moments several times a day to remind yourself that God is real, that he cares about you, and cast your cares upon him. Take a number of hours, maybe an entire day sometime, just to soak up the word of God and to be reminded of his promises in your life and his love for you. If your priorities are all out of whack, take a step each day to ask God to help you to see our world through his eyes. And if you do that consistently, if, if you begin to build your inner temple one stone at a time, one step at a time, you're going to find that your heart is going to break over the things that break the heart of God. And his spirit is going to impel you to increasingly be generous with your time and with your money. The important thing is, is that you change your mind, that you repent, that you stop making excuses, you stop pointing fingers at other people, and you just do what God's called you to do. You do that faithfully, and God will do his part to do what you can't do. And one day you're going to stand in awe at how much God has begun to transform your life into the image of Jesus. Finally, God says here, if you want my joy and peace in life, then make me your highest priority. Notice in verse 13, God tells those who have stepped out in obedience to him, I am with you. And what God's really saying here is, as you do your part, you can be assured that I'm going to do my part in building this inner spiritual temple within you. For I am always with you. Notice in verse 12 it says that the people feared the Lord. To fear the Lord doesn't mean that we fear that God's going to punish us or that God's going to hurt us. No, to fear the Lord means we respect the Lord so much and we revere him so much that we fear we might hurt or grieve his heart. To fear the Lord is living every moment of every day with the conscious awareness that God is real, that God is present in my life. That's what it means to fear the Lord. And folks, the closer we come to that, the more godly we're going to become as individuals. You know, I often take the same route to and from church. And like many of you, I have witnessed on almost a, a daily basis drivers breaking the law, not only in terms of their speed, but also in the way that they drive their, their vehicles. I mean, don't reckless drivers annoy you? I mean, don't you find yourself thanking God daily that you're not like all of those sinners on our freeways? Anyways, a few years ago, I was in a rush for an appointment, and I was ever so tempted to lean heavily on the pedal of God's grace. And as I was about to do so, I just happened to look to my right, and there was a police car next to me. You know, when I saw the police car, I was amazed at how quickly the urge to sin left me. The other thing I noticed was how quickly the urge to sin seemed to disappear from all the drivers around me. In fact, for the next several miles, we all traveled at exactly the posted speed limit in perfect formation, like a motorcade. I mean, like a funeral procession. It was a beautiful sight to behold, actually. But then the officer took an exit, and our little motorcade turned into Race City Speedway once again. <laughs> but isn't it interesting how most of us drive differently when we are consciously aware of the presence of a police officer? I want you to keep that image in mind 
For you see, in the same way, when we are consciously aware of God's presence within us, it's going to impact our thought life. It's going to impact our talk. It's going to impact our behavior and our impact on other people. But please understand this, it is not motivated out of a fear of being punished by God the way that we fear getting a ticket from a policeman. No, it's motivated out of a deep respect and love for our Creator God that compels us to honor Him, to follow Him, and to obey Him. So why does God want us to be why does he want to be our highest priority? Well, because of the closeness, the intimacy, the deep friendship that will develop between us and God, the, way that, the same way that a close friendship developed between God and Moses. We read in Exodus 33, uh, verse 11, that the Lord would speak to Moses as a man speaks to his friend. Don't you find yourself longing to have that kind of relationship with God? To speak to Him just as you do your best friend? God longs to have that kind of relationship with us, but it will only happen if we make Him the object of our highest affection. But there's another reason that He wants to be our highest priority, and that is because we are His temple now. We are the ones through whom God reveals himself to others. And many of us don't get this or understand this. You see, in the same way that God made himself real to the people of Israel through a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night, and then made himself real through the temple, in the fullness of time, God chose to reveal himself through his son Jesus, who referred to himself as the temple in John chapter 2, verse 18. Jesus came to earth fully God, fully human, to become the temple of God and to make God known. And then he sacrificed himself on the cross at Calvary so that all people could come in right relationship with God and know God personally. But you see, when Jesus died, the four-inch thick curtain in the temple of Jerusalem, separating the Holy of Holies from sinful man, was torn by God from the top to the bottom, indicating that from that time on, God's presence was now accessible to all, that all followers of Jesus Christ, that includes you, it includes me, are now His temple, and that His presence now lives in us, and goes with us wherever it is we go, not because we are worthy, but because we are in Christ, and Christ is in us through faith in Him, and He is the one that is worthy. Amen? Amen. The Apostle Paul writes to the believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's Spirit lives in you? Do you know that, friends? That God is in you, that you are His temple. Are you building the temple? Are you keeping the temple pure? I remind you, folks, what that means. It means that in the same way that the temple pointed people to the reality of God, the physical temple, in the same way that Jesus revealed the reality of God to people, so now we, God's new temple, are taking Jesus with us wherever we go, whatever it is we do, and we are revealing God's reality to whoever we interact with. When we gather together for worship like this and we worship and sing praises to God and hear God's word spoken or when we gather in our small groups or when we gather in our homes we remind each other that God is real and present all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present. When we interact with and we serve and we care for people in our community 
or for those who are at work or those who are at the school or the university we attend. We are making God's presence real to them. We are the presence of God to people in our world. If we're peculiar, it's because God's presence is in us. I mean, that's kind of exciting when you begin to think about it. But it's also kind of convicting too, isn't it? To think about the fact that we are his temple. Jesus said, you are my witnesses. You are my temple. And that's why he wants to be more than a daily appointment in our daily calendar. Or someone you think about for 90 minutes once a week in a worship service like this. No, he wants to be our friend. He wants us to trust him and to include him in every activity, every conversation, every thought, every challenge that we face. And to be aware that he is living in us and through us. He is impacting. He is making himself real. He's making himself known in the lives of those people that we intersect with. We can know that our friendship with God has gone to a deeper level when we consciously invite him to be present with us in everything we do. When we have an open-ended conversation with him all day long. When we ask him to do what we can't do. When we ask him for wisdom and for direction. When we ask him to speak through us, to shine through us in the lives of those that we're trying to reach out to. But more than that, we know that our friendship with God has moved to a, a, a much deeper level when we rest in Him. And we continue to walk with Him and include Him and find our deepest joy and satisfaction in Him even when life isn't turning out the way that we hoped or planned. When I think of this, I'm reminded of the true story that took place many years ago now during the Chinese Red Revolution. During that revolution, many Christians, and in particular pastors, they were rounded up and they were put into concentration camps. You might say that their dreams were shattered. I mean, many of these pastors spent years doing hard labor in these concentration camps, and many of them were never, ever again reunited with their families. And yet many of them had an unbelievable attitude that demonstrated not only a deep faith in the Lord, but also a deep friendship with Jesus, despite the hardship. Here's the testimony of one of those pastors that was actually given a number of years ago at the Billy Graham School of Evangelism in Lausanne, Switzerland. The pastor began by saying, my friends wonder what I did in the labor camp that kept me healthy and sane. I answered them that life in the labor camp was very, very hard. The authorities were atheists, and being aware of my faith, they decided to try to break me by having me work in a human waste cesspool. What they didn't know down through the years of my imprisonment was how much I enjoyed working at the cesspool. The cesspool was two meters wide, it was two meters long, filled with human waste collected from the entire camp. Because the pit was so deep, I couldn't reach the bottom to empty it. And so I had to walk into the disease-ridden mass and scoop out the successive layers of waste, all the time being forced to breathe the stench. The guards and the other prisoners, well, they stayed a long way off because of the stench. So why did I enjoy working at the cesspool? 
while in the labor camp. All the prisoners were under strict surveillance and no one could be left alone. But when I worked in the cesspool, I could be alone. And I could pray as loud and as long as I wanted to. I could recite scripture and no one would protest. I could sing loudly the hymns that I remembered. In those days, one of my favorite hymns was in the garden. Before I was arrested, this was my favorite hymn. But at the time, I didn't appreciate the real meaning of it. When I worked in the cesspool, I knew and I discovered a wonderful fellowship with the Lord such as I had never known. Again and again, I sang this hymn. And I experienced the Lord's presence in a way that, that I had never felt it before. He never left me. He never forsook me. And then he went on to recite the first verse of that hymn. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice that I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there none ever has ever known. You know, friend, whatever your cesspool is today, whatever your disappointment, whatever your loss or your hardship, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, who wants to walk with you, who wants to talk with you, and who wants to remind you that you are his own. Don't turn your back on him. No. Embrace him. For as you do, you will know a joy such as has never been known. Would you stand with me for closing? Father, I just want to thank you for the book of Haggai, the imagery that we see here that helps us understand how much you want to dwell with us, your people. Lord, I pray for those who have experienced a deep hurt or are grieving over a loss or a shattered dream, perhaps those who feel like they're in the cesspool of life. Pray, Lord, that you would help them to realize in a new way, based upon our study today, that whether we experience the good life exactly as we had dreamed it and planned for it to be, or whether all of that is shattered and we end up on a totally different path, in the midst of it all, you long to walk with us. You long to talk with us and to remind us that we're your own. And that true rest and joy and, and peace, lasting peace, is found in those moments with you, not in the temporary things of this life. Please teach us, Lord, a little more each day, one step at a time, to know what it means to be your friend. For I prayed in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. Amen.